Or oh, isn't it good when uh, you're gathering together and, uh, as, as, you know, certainly it's a sense of relief as a preacher when God starts to speak about what you're planning on preaching on before you've even stood up. Such a sense of relief. You say, oh, good, hopefully we're all on the same page here. And uh, a, a sense of God in the house and wanting to speak to us. And do you know those words, well, I just found them so powerful. Just as, uh, I, I, first of all, uh, Pat prayed about breaking chains and just feeling that and knowing already that Olaf had that word as well and then Chris bringing that whole thing of don't be misled for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory actually we we do need to have a a really good self-awareness so often we can believe our own messages and uh, believe ourselves actually to be so different to the reality of what we are and we can lose touch with reality and I just Whoa, just that sense of God just on us saying, hey, come on, guys, there's freedom here. There's freedom for us to walk into. There's freedom for us to enjoy. There's freedom for us to take to other people as well. He's starting, though, with us. Wow. That's, uh, that's just powerful. God is good. And uh, uh, today we're, we're, we're starting a preaching series which is going to last the whole year. Shock horror. Don't abandon hope. Um, It's going to be a slightly odd preaching series because what we're going to do is we're going to do four mini-series across the year with other things in between. Each mini-series will last five weeks. uh, But uh, we're going to spread them across the year because actually our sense is that, and uh, you'll know this language if you're part of this church because I use it regularly, that God's just wanting to take us on a journey. And I feel there is a process and journey that God wants to take us on over this year, particularly uh, around four words. I introduced those four words last week in my sermon last week. Uh, uh, Four words which hopefully will describe us, that when you meet someone who's part of Harvest Church, you'll go, yeah, they're like that. And more importantly, when people who know nothing of Harvest Church meet us, they'll also be able to go, do you know they just came across like this? And there would be something attractive and of the gospel in being like that, which would draw others to come and find out more. And uh, those four words which uh, I explained a bit last week were, the first one is genuine. Actually how God calls us to be a genuine people or a real people. That sense of being devoted together, uh, sharing uh, our lives, sincere hearts. The definition I used was this. It was being really real through lives of truth, integrity, honesty, and openness. Those are all big words. And uh, over the series, we'll, we'll work out together what that looks like. We're not just interested in having a preach about it. We actually want to start to go on a journey together and start to live this stuff out. Now you may say, oh, we know what that's all about already. There's nothing to learn. Can I encourage us? Let's just go back to that word Chris shared. We've all, I believe, got a journey to go on. I know Chris's word was particularly to do with all have sinned, but the reality is all of us have got more to learn about these things. And we're going to go on a journey together. It will be a process over the year. The second word was thankful. And uh, the uh, descriptive phrase I I used, actually I've altered it slightly this week, uh, was expressing deep gratitude for everything in every way to everyone. 
even in dark times, in every time, in every situation, always giving thanks as Paul encourages us to do. And we'll find out more about what it is to lead lives of true thankfulness. The third one was this, it was generous. Now I think generous is always a bit of a challenging word because we think we're talking about money, but actually it's much bigger than that. And the phrase I used was this, seeing the best, seeking the best, and sharing of our best. A true, uh, a generous heart, a generous spirit will affect all of our lives. It's not just about money or possessions. And then the final word was this. It was courageous, being a courageous people. And uh, the shortest description of the lot, fearless Christianity, regardless. In other words, in all those situations, fearless Christianity, even where we're tempted to fear, Fearless Christianity, knowing that God is good and he's with us and we can trust him in all of our circumstances and we can pursue him in every situation. And so uh, that's where we're going to head over this year. Now in between these preaching series, we'll do other mini-series. In fact, the, the first one which we will do will be, all, uh, will be all built around overcoming fear. And we'll probably do a series on worship and another series on leadership and various other ones throughout the year. But the whole will build together. But for today, we're going to start uh, uh, on this series, uh, looking at the word genuine, the first time of the four in the year we will look at this word genuine, by looking at a character in the Bible. In fact, this whole series will be built around characters in the Bible. And we're going to look at David. Now, if you've been around Christianity for any time, you would have probably come across the name King David. And you may know a little bit about him or you may not. So uh, if you want to read about him, and you may need to write this down because you may not remember it, if you want to read and understand about his story, you want to turn to the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament and chapter 16, albeit you can go a little bit earlier into chapter 13, and then really read all the way through to 2 Kings, chapter 1. And then, in fact, you could also look at 1 Chronicles and chapters 2 to 29. And that will tell you his whole story. You'll get a, a great picture of the, the, uh, of the life of David, this great king, because he was the king. He was probably the greatest king Israel, the people of God, ever had. And so you can read about him. But you know what? Also, you can read about him in the Psalms. Because many of the Psalms were written by King David. And so even in the Psalms, you will get a revelation of the character and the man. While not historically telling his story, you will get to know the person through some of the Psalms he's written to. So let's do a bit of background. I don't know whether you like history or not. Do you know, I, I hated history at school, but I've realised I really quite enjoy it. And so I've, I've tried to do a very quick bio of King David. And it will be a quick bio, and it will miss out a lot of things. But here's a few highlights. He was the youngest of eight children. Anyone here the youngest of a big family? I was youngest of four. Anyone youngest of a... Yeah, oh yeah we've got a few of those. Some of you know what that's like, being the youngest of a big family. Uh, the, the older siblings would say, you're spoilt, and uh, spoilt rotten, and all that sort of stuff. But he was the youngest of eight. 
That's, that really is quite a big family. Anyone here youngest of eight or more? No? No bids. Okay. And uh, one day the prophet Samuel came visiting his family. Samuel had been told to go and visit the house of Jesse. Jesse was his father. To find the future king of Israel. And David was so insignificant in Jesse's thinking that he was left out in the field to look after the animals because he was a shepherd, a shepherd boy. And Jesse lines up all his other sons there for Samuel to meet and not necessarily known to Jesse to prophesy over, this is going to be the king. This is the Lord's anointed one. And Samuel looks at them all and goes, no, none of this lot. Have you got another son somewhere? There's one hiding somewhere. And they wait for David to come in from the field. And Samuel prophesies over him that he's going to become king of Israel. And right in those early chapters of David's life, as it's recorded, 1 Samuel 16, verse 17, the qualification for David was this. Samuel said, God's not looking at the achievements effectively. He's looking at the heart. And David is described as a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. And that's powerful. By the way, if you didn't know this and uh, you like your your church history and your... uh, uh, David was the great-grandson of Ruth and Boaz. If you know the story of Ruth and Boaz, you can read it in the book of Ruth. He's the great-grandson of uh, Ruth and Boaz. And of course, Jesus comes from the house of David. You can track Jesus' family line all the way back to King David. David was a man of truth. He was a man of truth. In his early life, he went to take supplies to his brothers. They were in a battle situation and there was this champion for the Philistines called Goliath. And some of us know the story of Goliath. He was a giant. He literally was a giant of a man. Eight, nine foot tall. And he would call out, come on, who's going to fight me? If you can fight me, then you'll defeat the whole Philistines. And nobody came forward. And one day David's visiting, taking supplies to his brothers on the battlefront. And he sees Goliath challenging Israel. And he knows the truth. And he basically says, how dare he? How dare he stand against God's anointed people? Of course he's going to fall. We're the people of God. He's got to fall. Because God's on our side. He's a man who's got hold of truth and let truth sink deep into his spirit, deep into his heart. The truth about who God is, the truth about who God's people are. That is the church, that is Christians, that is us. If you're a believer, you're part of the church, corporate. You're part of God's people. There's truth about who we are, we need to absorb. He was a man of truth. And he wasn't going to let... Goliath, stand there. David stands up to Goliath. First of all, they try and equip him in Saul's armour. Well, it doesn't fit him. It's heavy, it's clunky. David's a shepherd boy. He's used to 
killing and fighting off animals that would attack the flock. And he sees Goliath just in the same way. So he bends down and picks up five smooth stones from a riverbed. He gets his slingshot out. One shot. Goliath's down. He knows who he is. But he's also a man of honesty and openness in his love for God. We've talked about how he's a musician and author of many psalms. And uh, we know that in the days of King Saul, the, the, the king before David, when Saul was being attacked by evil spirits effectively, David would come and play the lyre, play music, and that would bring a peace as David worshipped God. He was a worshipper of Jesus. He was an extravagant worshipper. There is another account of David when he is basically stripped down to the bare essentials, worshipping God, celebrating the goodness of God. And he's mocked. And he says, I will come even more undignified than this in my worship of Jesus. He's a man of truth, but he's a man of honesty and openness. He, he, what, you get, what you see is what you get. He's a real, genuine character. He's an extravagant worshiper. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 6 and around there. He's also a man of great integrity, amazing integrity. In the story of him and Saul, Saul has gone against God. Saul knows he's losing his throne. And he knows David is his successor and Saul decides to try and kill David and he hunts him down. And David's hiding in a cave. And Saul comes into that cave and David could have killed Saul. He's urged to by his men. He goes, no, 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 no. No, I'm going to hold back. Who am I to stand against the Lord's anointed one? He waits. He says, no, God can take Saul out. He doesn't need me to. I'm not going to let my ambition get in the way here. When God wants him dealt with, God will deal with him. I'll trust God in that. He has phenomenal integrity. He knows what he's called to. And yet he's not going to seize it in a wrong way. In fact, when Saul dies, you can read about how David genuinely grieves for Saul in 2 Samuel 1, second half of. And of course, David's also known for his immense courage. That's a different area we're going to come on to courage in a few weeks' time. I won't go any further on that one, despite the fact it's very tempting. But he is known for his phenomenal courage and his fighting men and his armies and how they are so bound to him because of who he is. And yet then, one could say at the peak of his career, at the peak of his kingship, David blows it. I mean, he doesn't just slightly blow it. He blows it full bore. 
He blows it in every way pretty much you can imagine. See, one day David's out on his rooftop and from his rooftop of his palace he can see other rooftops and there is a lady called Bathsheba. And she's bathing. She's just had her period and she's bathing. She's having a purification bath, it says. And he sees her and he thinks, I want her. Even though she's married, and he knows she's married because she's married to one of the commanders of his army, a man he would know well called Uriah, a man who he would understand Uriah's circumstances very, very well. But he lusts after Bathsheba. And they have sexual relationship, and out of that sexual relationship, she becomes pregnant. Uriah, up until this point, is totally clueless what's happened. In fact, he's right the way through, it seems. But then David thinks, well, how am I going to cover up what I've done? Uh-uh, another mistake. You don't cover up, you admit. But he decides to cover up. Well, how can he cover this up? How can he deal with this situation? How can he admit to Uriah, one of his key men, his commanders of his army, that he has gone and undermined that relationship, that he's broken integrity, he's, he's not being honest, he's not being open, he's blown it so big time. And he goes, I can't, I'm not going to. So instead he devises a plan to kill Uriah. Hang on, the great king of Israel, this much lauded king of Israel, an adulterer and a murderer? Yes. And his plan comes into effect. And it works. And you can imagine probably he's thinking, I've got away with it. I've got away with it. I'd certainly be thinking that. And then in 2 Samuel, we read about a prophet who pops in to have a quick chat with David about something. His name is Nathan, funnily enough. Welcome, Nathan. Juliana, it's wonderful having you with us. 2 Samuel 12, verse 1. The Lord sends Nathan to David. When he comes to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. The poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man. But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David, hearing this, burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. 
This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord? By doing what is evil in his eyes. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with your sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the Lord shall uh, sorry the sword shall never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says out of your household I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. The Lord has taken away your sin. As people here today, you need to know that with a genuinely repentant heart, the Lord takes away all your sin in Christ Jesus. Not because you were good enough, but but because you weren't. Because there was only one perfect sacrifice. And his name was Jesus. And he died for your sin and my sin. And there's only one way to know him. Uh, to, To know the Father's love. To know our sins dealt with and it's through Jesus. Not through our effort. Not through anything else. But through the grace of God. In Christ Jesus. Nathan continues, you are not going to die. But because by doing this you've made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. We won't continue the story at that point. But what we will do, if you have your Bibles, is then turn to Psalm 51. And uh, just put your finger in there for a moment. We'll come back to Psalm 51 in a minute. David blows it big time. The great king of Israel, adulterer, murderer. Do you know what? I find that so encouraging because there's hope for each one of us. Because God doesn't just work with perfect people. In fact, he solely seems to work with imperfect people. And the great people of the Bible that we're going to be looking at over this journey, time and time again, we're going to see how imperfect we can be and yet God can work with us. And I don't know about you, but I find that really encouraging because I know I am quite imperfect. Everything changes for David as a result of his wrong behavior. Just to finish off his story before we go to Psalm 51... Even though, as, we, as we've seen and as we'll see further, he repents, he, they end up losing the baby. The baby dies. 
Family members are killed. Absalom, his son, rebels and tries to steal his kingdom, David's kingdom, which ends up resulting in Absalom's death. Despite everything, and not surprisingly, a massive sadness to David is Absalom's death and all that happens. Later in his life, David actually angers God another time by counting the people when he wasn't meant to. He recognises, though, he gets it wrong. But because of what he does, 70,000 of the people of God, of Israel, die because of David's actions through a three-day plague. 70,000. What's that? Three and a half times the population of Alton. Wiped out because of David's actions. Finally, at the end of his life, David protects Solomon from a further rebellion. Solomon is one of his children. Solomon is his successor. And actually, David ensures he hands on the kingdom, the people of God, to Solomon, who also becomes a a very famous king, a well-known king. He does the whole handover so well. Now, I'd like us to go back, having painted, hopefully, a little bit of a full picture of David's story to Psalm 51. You see, in that passage we read from 1 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel, it just said David repented. didn't really say very much at all. But what you have here in Psalm 51 is what that repentance looked like. This is David's account. This is David's prayer, really, his interaction with God over what he did. You see, it wasn't just David repented, I'm sorry, that was it. This whole psalm, it starts with, have mercy on me, O God, according to your failing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, that's my sins, what I've done wrong. Wash away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. He really knows he's blown it. And he's not holding back. He's being very genuine with God. Now you can read this psalm, and I'd encourage you to read this psalm. I'm going to take us to a particular three verses I want to focus on. But please, find time and read the whole psalm. Verse 10 says this. Creating me a pure heart, O God. So having repented, those first nine verses really are his prayer of repentance. He's sort of starting to move on at this point. Creating me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And I just want to draw three very simple points which I believe actually are characteristics of David's life from these three verses about being real, about being genuine, which we can learn to also do in our lives. And they're this. The first one, we've already mentioned it, is God looks at the heart. God's interested in our hearts. 
He's interested in our hearts. David's prayer, having repented, what's he say? Create in me a pure heart, O God. See, the heart of the matter is, it's your heart. It's what's going on deep inside of you. We're not referring to the physical bit somewhere around here. I'm not very good with biology, but I think it's somewhere around here. Uh, we're not referring to that heart. We're talking to, about the, the spirit, our spirit. What's deep in us? What's deep in us? See, he doesn't go just, just say sorry. David doesn't just say sorry. He goes to the heart of the issue, his heart. Remember, he's described as a man after God's own heart. And our Father God is so much more interested in our hearts than what we do, than what we achieve, than what we sacrifice, or anything else. God's interested in my heart. He's interested in your heart. And maybe now's the point just to pause and say, Lord, am I being real with you? Do you have my heart? And consider what that looks like. Consider what it looks like for you. We'll keep going, but there'll be further time to reflect on this in a few minutes. The question, I guess, ultimately is, are you real? Are you really real with God? Or are you trying to kid him? David thought he could kid God. That, he could pers- that God didn't know. That God was blind to what had happened with Bathsheba. And God is very clear. We know it from Scripture. It te- yeah, scripture teaches us this, but he knows everything. And he knows what we think, not just what we do. What's your heart like? Is it healthy? Is it in surrender? Surrender to Almighty God? Or is it running to your agenda? Are you really real before God? You can't be genuine with other people if you can't be genuine before God. Moving on, his next line though, having prayed, created me pure heart of God and renew a, a stead, a good spirit within me, is this, don't cast me from your presence. He's saying, oh God, actually, you are more important than anything else. He's reaffirming the essence of his relationship. And core to that relationship is what? Or take your Holy Spirit from me. Now you may say, well hang on, I thought the Spirit wasn't given until after Pentecost. You're right, the Spirit wasn't given to all mankind after Pentecost, but the Holy Spirit was involved in individual people's lives. And it seems the way Saul, um, David refers to his intimacy with the Spirit, that very clearly he was a man of the Spirit of God. However that worked out. He was one of these unique people who clearly knew the Holy Spirit of God. And his prayer isn't just, God, forgive me, but it's, oh God, I want my relationship restored with you. I know I've messed up. I've so messed up that I've lost part of my relationship with you, Lord God. And crucial to that is, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. 
I need your spirit. I need to be a person of your spirit. Because, of course, it's the spirit who leads us in truth and righteousness. We know that. That's one of the things he's described as doing. It's the spirit who enables us, actually, to be real. Because he brings us to that place of deep security in God. Of understanding who we are and who he is. He brings that revelation of the love of God. And he gives us gifts to empower us to live life. A recognition, he has a recognition that the Holy Spirit is essential for living life. I want to ask, do you have that hunger? Is the Holy Spirit an add-on? Well, it's nice when he's around, but I'm not really too worried. Or are you trying to live life by his Spirit? as we're encouraged to do. Are you a person who hungers after the Holy Spirit, who doesn't want to lose intimacy with the Holy Spirit, who wants to be led and guided and directed by the Holy Spirit? Are we that kind of people? And the reality probably for all of us is there's moments where we go yes and there's moments where we go no. And I want to encourage each of us to go on the same journey, which is that we say yes more often and no less often. Because that probably is reality for each one of us. We'll always battle. We always want to do things our way. That's the essence of sin. It's, it's deep inside of us. Let's be real about these things. Shock, horror, confession time. I battle on this. Well, you shouldn't really be very surprised because I'm just like you. I'm made of flesh and bones. And actually, if the truth be told, we all battle on it as well. So let's get it out there. Let's be real. Let's not hide about this. But let's help one another to be a people of the Spirit. People whose hearts are after God. People who walk in intimacy with His Spirit. Who brings us that place of security. Wow, that we can be real. And then he goes on. (laughs) As if this isn't enough, he goes on. Restore to me. Restore. Wow. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Do you remember the day you got saved? Do you remember the joy? You may describe it in different words. It may have been just overriding peace. It may have been that point where you just knew at long last the battle was over and you'd surrendered. I remember it well. 23rd of January 1983, about 10 o'clock in the evening. I think it was number 13, Carisbrook Walk, on the Woodside Estate of Bedford. I can tell you the people who prayed with me. Why? Because I know everything changed in my life at that point. Now I say everything, that that can sound very dramatic. There was lots that then still needed to change. But that was the pivotal moment where I found peace with Almighty God. I knew that my sin was genuinely forgiven. And that I had a father who loved me and cared for me and wanted intimacy with me. And wanted me to enjoy him and know him and delight in him. And I remember going home and starting to write a diary. You've probably heard me tell this story, some of you, before. I'd never written a diary before in my life. And the first page of this diary I wrote, and it was just an old scrappy reporter's notebook, was, I'm forgiven. 
I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. And I kept on writing, I'm forgiven, on every line throughout the whole of the first page of this notebook. And that's all I wrote. The next morning I wrote down then what had happened to me and said, I've never known anything like this before in my life. The deep sense of peace and joy. The sense of battles over. Now each one of us have got different stories. What was the joy of your salvation? How did you express your joy of being saved? More importantly, do you still have it? Or has your faith just become something, ah, just do it now, just have to get on with it? I think praying, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Wow, I think that's powerful. That's about being real again. It's not just making this mechanical, it's saying, wow, this is really important, God. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Help me to stay intimate with you. When something's precious to us, when something's important to us, when we're delighting in something, it's so much easier to make good calls and good decisions. As we choose to delight in God, as we enjoy, as we celebrate his goodness over us, as we delight ourselves in him, as we find joy in our salvation, as we remember what God's done for us, the enormity of what God's done for us, wow, hey, I want to live for him more. I want to lay all the other stuff down. Why do I want to play with a load of stuff that's going to make me messy and yicky? I want to delight in him more. Some of us need to pray, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And actually do some things. Make time and space to consider the enormity of fresh of what God's done. To lay aside some of the busyness and uh, pressure of the world and life and everything else which crowds in. Do you know I had one of those moments yesterday? Just a, at the end of a really, really busy week and uh, for some reason uh, we'd installed a new printer at home which wasn't working quite right and then the router died. And I hate technology. If you've not worked this one out yet, I just... When technology's working, it's wonderful, and when it's not, it's awful. And I, my spirit sinks when things go wrong involving technology, probably because I just don't understand it. And apart from wanting to take a sledgehammer to the router and the printer, at various points yesterday, and Emma will testify to this, not that I actually got as far as the garage to go and get one, but at times it was very tempting. It took me about three hours before I was in the place where I could say, God... Just surrender it. I surrender. It doesn't really matter. You're far more important. I lost my peace for hours. Why do I tell you that? Because it's so easy for each of us to do. It may not be technology for you. You may be a technology whiz kid. And your printer never goes wrong and your route always works. Praise God. (laughs) I want that anointing. It may be something completely different. Go back to the place of restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Give me a fresh perspective. Give me a fresh way of looking at things. Help me to see you refreshed, Lord Jesus. Deep heart cry of restoration. Saying, actually, I know this is the best place for me. The best place for me is in the midst of the Father's love, of delighting myself in who he is and what he's done. 
intimacy, delighting. You know, that's why encounters are going to be so important next week. For many of us, we need to just have time to encounter. And we need to actually be around others to encounter him and to, to spend time with him. There is no agenda apart from encounter, encountering God next Sunday evening. There is no preach planned. There are, there's nothing else planned apart from we're here to encounter God. I want to encourage you, next Sunday evening, great thing to be at, but actually we need to encounter God every day. And we need to find ways of encountering God every day, throughout our day. David's life teaches us one other thing. It's this. Success is never a guarantee that things will continue well. In fact, success is probably the most dangerous place because with, with success, if it doesn't acknowledge God, comes pride and ego. And ego, if you've never heard this before, stands for this, edge God out. Edge God out, that's what ego does, that's what pride does. Says, I'm, I'm, I've got it right. I don't need God's help. Why do I need God's help? Look what I've managed to achieve. Pushes God out. Let's be a people who make space for God, who welcome Him, who embrace Him, who draw ourselves close to Him, who are genuine before Him, and in being genuine before Him, are genuine with one another. People of truth. People of integrity, people of openness, people of honesty before God. Yes, when things go well, sure, celebrate it. Celebrate the goodness of God. Celebrate the grace of God. Celebrate the journey we're on. Celebrate the freedom that God brings. Those are all great things to celebrate. That, you know, that moves on to thankfulness. We'll, we'll hit that next week. Fundamentally, though, David may have got some things wrong, but he got it right in the end. And he is recognized as one of, the, one of, if not the great king. The great king of Israel, the great king of God's people. And you know, you may be sitting here today and going, huh, blown it, may as well just leave now. No. If you think that's the message from today, you've got it wrong. The message from today is... We've all blown it. Now let's get back to him. So what we're going to do now is um, we're going to sing a song. It's a song which I first heard sung about 30-something years ago, written by a man called Keith Green. And uh, many of you would never have heard of Keith Green. Some of you uh, of more mature years, shall we say, like myself, We'll go, oh, I remember Keith Green. And it's based on these three verses from Psalm 51. And what I'm hoping we can do is, I think Graham and Kathy are going to come and sing it to us. We'll have the words up the first time round. And then I'll invite us to stand and sing it. I want them to sing it to us first. So you've got an opportunity to see what you're going to sing. And then I want to encourage us to use it as a song prayer as a way of asking our Father to come and restore to us, to create in us a clean heart. And all those things we've just talked about, that we too would be more and more like David as people 
after God's own heart. Thank you.